Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the Mentium Matters podcast, where we talk about leadership, life, and the transformative power of mentoring. I am Megan Cummings-Kruger, and today our conversation is going to be focused on the power of being intentional in all aspects of our lives, but in particular when it comes to the work around race, diversity, equity, and inclusion in corporate America. My guest today is Shinda Robinson, who is Global Vice President of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at GM Financial. Shinda is responsible for executing and implementing world-class initiatives and serves as an advisor and partner to senior leaders, providing a progressive voice on sustainable diversity and inclusion strategies. Shunda has a Bachelor of Science degree in Human Relations and Business and an MBA in Strategic Leadership from Amberton University. She resides in Arlington, Texas. She is the proud parent of two daughters. She first joined the Mentium community as a mentee and recently happily returned to mentor with us. So we're delighted to have her as a mentoring partner and we are delighted to have her as a guest today. Welcome, Shunda. Thank you, Megan. Glad to be here. So I'd like to start with a question which I know is likely on the minds of many of our listeners because it is a question that you are asked most often. And that is, as an African-American female executive, how did you get to where you are now? Um, I would say it's really really been a journey. Um, You know, very, very similar to dating. You know, you kiss a lot of frogs. (laughs) <laughs> I I found myself on this journey sometimes in positions that I didn't want to be in, but I look back and realize that even if you find yourself in those positions, there's opportunity that exists to learn something, to grow in those areas. We're not going to always be comfortable on our career journey, but I do think that in those uncomfortable times, there are lessons to be learned. I also learned on this journey that you know, being as I as I climbed and progressed in my career, the higher I got, the more often I found myself the only, the only female, the only African-American in the room. And also being comfortable in those situations. Um, you know, we hear the proverbial statement, getting comfortable being uncomfortable. And it really rings true. I mean, if you are one where you find yourself having to be comfortable in every situation, I don't know that success is truly for you in that respect, because you have to be able to find your voice and use your voice for the opportunity that's given to you. I think back to when I was in fifth grade and being the only in my classroom, I went to um, an elementary school in Fort Worth, Texas, and this was in the 80s. And I was the only African-American in my class. And I remember noticing that. And I didn't really have uh, an uncomfortable feeling until something happened. One day, the teach- our teacher was absent and we had a substitute teacher and she rolls in the video. So typically, you know, kids are excited about video. Ooh, we get to watch a movie today. And I remember very, very well. It was Bill Cosby, stand-up comedian, talking about Black families and, um, you know, joking about things that happen, typically happen in Black families. And, you know, of course, today I would laugh at that because a lot of what he said is true. But as a 10-year-old, 11-year-old fifth grader, being the only Black in my class, it made me very, very uncomfortable. So I remember asking the sub 
if I could go to the restroom. And I sat in the restroom until the video was over. So you're talking maybe 45 minutes. And the next day when our teacher came back, um, I, I talked to my parents about it and they encouraged me to talk to her about it. And I talked to my teacher the next day and she took my face in her hands. And I remember she had tears in her eyes and she said, Shonda, I never, ever wanted you to feel uncomfortable. I have purposely not taught on things like the Civil War because I never wanted you to feel uncomfortable. You are so um, important to me, so important to this class. And she hugged me. And I remember Mrs. Carolyn Estes, and I recently looked her up. She passed away a few years ago. But that was such a pivotal moment for me, owning my voice as an African-American female and embracing it for all that it is. Even if I find myself being the only in situations, there's power being the only when you embrace that power. Um, and that, that was a hard lesson. And that was, you know, imagine that was hard for a fifth grader to take my voice and use it for good. Um, and that's what I consider myself doing today is taking my voice as an African-American female executive and using it for good to help other people um, realize their voice. That's a powerful story. I appreciate you sharing it. And it also calls to mind the fact that so often difficult, hard experiences do bring learning with them. That mm -hmm. opportunity to hear that from your wonderful teacher might never have happened had you not found your voice in the face of what was a real challenge. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. And it's, you know, and I appreciate, I look back and I can appreciate even her transparency in understanding that and realizing that because she could have responded in a totally different way. Um, but, but just the fact that she understood tells me that there is the capacity for people to understand people's plights, their, their uncomfortable situation and not deem it as, oh, they're being overly sensitive or, oh, get over it. Oh, nobody's thinking about that. And so I think that's important for us to realize in that situation. She really helped me realize that. Absolutely. So you have said that diversity, equity, and inclusion can't just be what we say. It has to be what we do. It has to be when we are in the hallways and offices of our organizations every single day. So can you tell us a little more about what you mean by this? Yeah. You know, I think when we, you know, this whole notion around talking about race in at the workplace has been so taboo. You know, we've heard the big three. You don't talk about race. You don't talk about religion. You don't talk about sex. All of those things that we don't talk about. And it's interesting that this past year with the murder of George Floyd, and you've got Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, all of those unfortunate instances that we, you know, that we suffered and encountered last year really brought this whole conversation about race to the forefront. And to me, the underlying question was, why don't we talk about that in the workplace? There is an appropriate concern to some degree in a lot of instances when you start talking about promotions and you start talking about who gets developed and who's getting the stretch assignments and um, who's getting those lateral moves. Why aren't we talking about the obvious? Because typically in those situations and conversations, it's the elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about. And when I talk about um, it's got to be what we do and say every day in the hallways 
that means addressing those conversations when it's necessary. And I think more often than not, it's necessary. And instead of addressing it head on and just having the conversation and normalizing the conversation, um, we go around it, which gives opportunity for a lot of other angst and unfortunate assumptions that people make. That's when that builds up because we're not communicating the obvious. It's, you know, it's the, again, it's that uncomfortable nature that people have because a lot of people may be sensitive to it. And so I, my question to folks is what's bringing about that sensitivity for you? Is it that you don't know what to say? You don't know what questions to ask, or is it that you may not have an answer for the questions that may be asked? You know, for example, you know, if a person asks, you know, I applied for this position and I never got um, any feedback as to why I didn't get the position. All I'd like is some feedback. What's so hard about that? Because in my opinion, if we are honest and true and being totally transparent, every individual that applies for a position that doesn't get selected should be able to get some constructive feedback as to why they weren't selected. And so you have to ask yourself as a hiring manager, as the leader in the situation, what am I afraid of? Because when feedback is not given and you've got a a distinct difference between this person is African-American that that didn't get the position or the person that did get the position is Caucasian. And there's not a big difference in terms of the knowledge, skills and abilities. The assumption that's left is I didn't get it because I'm a person of color. So if you want to dispel that, um, let's be transparent and let's give people that feedback that they need. Feedback is a gift. And so if we aren't capable of giving people much needed feedback that they need to improve themselves for the next time, are we really ready to be the leader that we're called to be? So it's really about normalizing the conversation of race. And I don't mean in a defensive way. I mean, in a healthy way where we're trying to gain an understanding because these are lived experiences for people. And I think in essence, when we're negating the conversation happening in the workplace, we're saying, oh, check yourself at the door. Oh, you you can't show up as a black person. You can't show up as an Asian. You can't show up as Hispanic. You need to show up as Shonda. But what encompasses Shonda is I'm a female, I'm African-American, I'm a parent. There's so many dimensions to the individual. And for us to ask them not to bring that to work is doing a disservice to that individual. And I think to the company overall. I'm sure that this is resonating for so many listeners. And I wonder, uh, can you provide a specific example of when you've been able to help navigate those courageous conversations that haven't been happening? Does something come to mind or are there certain habits or best practices that you found effective in normalizing the conversation? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question, Megan. Last year, after the situation, you know, with George Floyd and, you know, that whole dynamic continued to play on TV. And of course we were all at home, right? So of course we saw it every time it replayed and every time it was on the news and every time it was on a talk show, we saw it. And it was almost like filling a bucket and the water hose not stopping. So just constant spillover, spillover, that we could no longer resist the need to discuss it in the workplace. 
it was that strong. Um, and it was, we were compelled as organizations. And I think not just GM Financial, but organizations everywhere. I'm hearing from friends that are working for companies and, you know, having the need to have this conversation, this much needed conversation about race in America had to happen because you were asking people to ignore that, show up to work. And of course, we're all showing up on screen and be your happy, jovial self. When in large, for the African-American community, we were not okay. We were not okay. And a lot of non-African-American people also expressed they're not okay. And we need to talk about this. So it just happened organically in our organization where um, we have a council. So we have a diversity council. It's a global council across the organization. And it's made up about, of about 120 team members across the organization. And they reached out to me and said, Chanda, we need to talk about this. Immediately, we scheduled, they scheduled a meeting. I was actually out on vacation when this happened and started getting you know, all types of text messages and phone calls. And I said, get something on the calendar. And they scheduled a call on the calendar. And I don't remember ever having a council meeting where we had about 95% participation. Like every council member participated in the call. And when I tell you it was probably the most cathartic call that we could have had where we just heard from team members share how they were feeling, what they were feeling, the fears that they had, the concerns that they had. And I'm not just talking African-American, I'm talking Caucasian, Asian, Hispanic, um, American Indian. Um, our council is extremely diverse. And all of these team members were speaking out saying, I'm so sorry, that makes my heart hurt. And just really you know, offering empathy and compassion and all of that. That we recorded that meeting, sent it to some of our business leaders, and I immediately got bombarded with Shonda, can you help me with this? Can you schedule this? We need to do this. My organization needs to talk about this. I'm getting team members requesting, I don't know what to do. Not a problem. I get it. You're a white leader, you're stepping into a territory that you're probably not very experienced in. You feel like, should I say something? Should I not? What should I do? How should I handle it? I don't want my actions to be misconstrued. And I understand that. So I immediately took as many of them by the hand as I could and said, let's walk through this together. And so in a matter of probably 90 days, we probably had over 55-ish listening sessions across the entire organization. And I'm talking hour-long sessions where the leader opened up the call, introduced, said how they were feeling, addressed the situation head on. It wasn't this. And I and what I said to them is, you need to address it as the murder of George Floyd, not the George Floyd situation, not the incident that happened. Let's call it what it is. That's important. That's important for people to hear is that you as a leader, you acknowledge what happens in the world. And Megan, it was probably the one of the best seasons of our organization that I can remember because it we showed up as empathetic individuals needing to understand, needing to feel validated, needing to feel valued 
and just holding each other's hands as we walked through this very critical time in history. This is a time in history that we will never forget. And I am still getting emails to this day of how helpful that time was and how a lot of team members were saying to hear from my leader, to hear that my leader did this, you just don't know how that made me feel. So I think it was it was needed. And and I'm not I'm not going to sugarcoat and say it was easy. A lot of leaders, it wasn't easy for them, but I applaud them for just showing up and making the attempt and 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 having the want to, because none of the leaders that I partnered with, it didn't feel forced. It didn't feel like, oh, I've got to do this because I got to do it. I never felt that from any leader. It was a genuine concern that I have team members in my organization that I want them to feel heard and validated. And I want to create a safe space for them. There were some calls where you'd have just quiet time for a good 90 seconds. Did it feel uncomfortable? Sure. But we got through it and somebody, and it wasn't, you know, I did, I told the leader, you can't rush it. So don't feel awkward. Let the silence occur. And eventually somebody will speak up and sure enough, they did. So it was fantastic. And I and I just, I applaud companies everywhere that really leaned into this and took it to heart because lives were changed everywhere because of this incident. But, but what's most important is that where we spend the most of our waking time at work, when that can be a place also where we feel safety, that's important. And I tell you, for those companies that didn't respond to it, I am sure a lot of those employees are probably looking for jobs elsewhere because that was a critical, critical time for for companies to show employees what they were made of. Thank you for sharing that. It's an incredible example on so many levels. You know, part of it is the vulnerability of leadership, that ability to connect and create a community, on top of which during a global pandemic, when this is happening virtually, this also speaks to my next question. I know that you made that leap from the learning and development world over to your current DEI work. And so I'd love to hear more about how you feel that intentionality benefited you. Yeah, I think, I'm, I, you know, it's interesting because I remember, I remember being a, a, when I was a kid, you know, probably around, I don't know, 12 or 13. And I was, my, my parents used to say, you are so militant. Like I was military. Like I, I was the kid that made my bed every morning. Like that was something that was just kind of ingrained in me. And I don't know, I can't say where it came from, but I remember thinking as a child, my intent was to foster an environment of organization. And I feel like when you are in a space of being organized and things are organized around you, it provides the opportunity for you to think clearer thoughts and you can think bigger thoughts. So your your thoughts aren't congested and all over the place. You can think with clear direction. So so that was always important to me. You know, is just having a clear space, a clean space where my mind can be clear. And I just remember, you know, thinking when I got into training early in my career, 
having those moments of, and in, in, in the training that I was in, it wasn't a technical training. It was more soft skills, leadership development, that type of training. And I remember being so motivated when people had those epiphanies, they had those aha moments. And when it came a time where this position came open, I was a little hesitant. I'll, I'll, I'll admit that um, because what I, I didn't want is I didn't want to be this African-American figurehead in this position of diversity and not being able to do the things that need to be done. So when when myself and a former boss, we sat down to talk about the position, I said, you know, this has to be important to the top leadership of the organization, or I'm not interested in it. And I was very candid about that. And he assured me by having me interview with the top leadership of the organization. So I needed to know that it was important. So again, being intentional about what you want and not being afraid to express what's needed for the things that you want. So whether it's a job or whether it's a relationship or things like that, being intentional requires you to be verbal. You have to verbalize what it is you need, what it is you want. So, you know, taking this position, I think you have to, you also have to balance it with, you know, what's needed versus what's also realistic. But how do you merge the two so that you get the things that you need to get the job done? And it's not about, you know, this power kick of, oh, I'm, I'm throwing my weight around because I'm a VP or what have you, because, you know, I firmly believe in how you treat others always comes back to you. And to me, you attract more bees with honey than with salt. So how you treat others, people will remember that. And they will, it will, you treat people kindly and they just automatically want to step up and help you and do things for you. So, you know, kindness, of course, goes a long way. But I think being intentional, because I always saw with this position, I always thought, you know, going back to Covey's, you know, be, you know, begin with the end in mind. And I always thought the end, like, what does the end look like? And the end for me with diversity, equity, and inclusion is it's a it's a transformation of hearts and minds. This is not we check the box. Oh, we did diversity. How do you do diversity? You know, okay, you hire some people on your team that don't look like you. Check. Okay, and so what now what? You know, like the big question is, okay, now what? What are you doing? So it's not about that, but I remember thinking in this transformation of, you know, transforming how people think, it's really how people think about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Are people doing it because it's a job requirement or are they doing it because they truly see the benefit and more importantly, can see the impact of it, not just on their team, on their department, before the entire organization. Um, there's so many studies out there that show that companies that have been done, that show that companies that have a diversity strategy outperform companies that don't by like 40% or so. And I honestly think that may be changing because I think it's I think it's more. I really do. So as an organization, 
it would be in the best interest of that organization to embrace this idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion and realize where we're missing the mark. Like, where are the gaps? And I think that's hard for a lot of companies to do is being intentional in that respect because they think that, oh, it's going to show us lagging as a company. But I think transparency is everything. People respect you more when you admit your mistakes and then you make a commitment that you're going to do something about it versus not saying anything at all. And that's what I'm really proud of at GM Financial is that we've got leadership that is really open to being transparent and saying, hey, we don't have all of the right answers. Everything is not perfect, but we are constantly working and striving to do better. And we're constantly looking out um, to see where we need to make those changes. So, you know, being intentional is really about, you know, how many people can I build those authentic relationships with that say, it's not it's not that I want you to jump on the diversity train because I'm pulling you. I'd rather have willing hearts than twisted arms. Lots of that intentional behavior and beginning with the end in mind. What else comes to mind when you think about maybe taking that time to reflect? Any other habits that you found really effective for you? Oh, yeah. Journaling is huge for me. Very therapeutic. I remember being a freshman in college and one of my cousins sent me a care package and it had a journal in it. And I just started. I was like, oh, this is cute. I'll use it. And I've been journaling ever since. I mean, through every every facet of my life, you know, having children, being married, being divorced now. I mean, all of that I've journaled. And I think that it's helpful for a number of things, really therapeutic. So it allows you to release a lot of things that you may be thinking and feeling, but you can also reflect back on it and see how far you come. And sometimes it's kind of painful reading some of those old journal entries, but I think it shows us just how much the human spirit is resilient and how much we can, how much fortitude we have and, you know, how, just how, how we're made to be overcomers. So there's a lot that you can celebrate in that. So that's a, that's a big one for me. Like, you know, it's funny because I hear people thinking, oh, just give me a glass of wine. And I'm like, oh, let me just journal. <laughs> like, that is so necessary for me. And that's just, you know, that's just how I'm wired. I mean, I give me a journal over a glass of wine any day. <laughs> I'll take the glass of wine too, but. <laughs> right, 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 right. Exactly. I can do both. I'm good with that. <laughs> I love that idea, you know, when you have journaled for so long and you're able to truly meet your earlier self, because we do, as you say, we grow. And so when you think about uh, the advice you would give to leaders, you know, now, uh, what are takeaways? What is it that you, you know, the classic that you wish you'd known then that you do know now? What would you like to share? Well, there's a couple of things. Oh, there's a few things I can think of right off few things that I wish I knew as a as an early professional that I know now is speak up when it doesn't feel good. I think so many people stay in positions that don't serve them, that don't bring out the best in them for so long thinking that they don't have options. 
And we all know options are there. You know, I mean, you just have to be willing to do something different. And I think for, for humans, the fear of change becomes greater than the fear of staying the same and doing something over and over that you're not happy with. But I say embrace that fear of change and do it anyway. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, I just, I have a daughter who's early in her career. She's 26, almost 26. And I say to her, find your voice early. I wish I had found my voice in my 20s. I feel like I'd be in such a different place right now. And, you know, find your voice early and use it. And finding your voice doesn't mean that you're disrespectful or you're unkind to people. Finding your voice says, I am going to speak up um, when it's necessary, whether it benefits me or benefits another person. Because this is where allyship is really important. When you talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion and the benefits that it brings an organization, allies are almost more important, are probably the most important element when you really need to push that diversity boulder uphill. We need the voice and input of allies. And whether that's allies of you know, the Asian community, the African-American community, LGBTQ, whatever, you know, working mothers or mother or women, we need the voice of allies. And again, that's a voice that you need to find. Like if it's something that you can support, support it, lend your voice and be a voice of support for people that have been fighting for a long time, these underrepresented groups that we keep hearing about. So that's part of finding your voice is not not just being a voice for yourself, but also being a voice for others. To me, that's important. And then I, I think, you know, my last one I would say is, you know, just really getting truly getting comfortable being uncomfortable. I, I think so many. And this is this is where I say this is what separates courageous leaders from those that are not courageous. You know, being a courageous leader says, I am willing to stick my neck out and call something wrong, even though I may fear for my own personal psychological safety. You know, oh, I fear I may lose my job or what have you. But I think there is power in that courage of a leader that says, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. You know, whether it's, you know, how we promote promoting practices in an organization where you know politics override the right thing to do you know how we hire how we recruit um how we promote how we give raises and you know pay equity all of that as a leader sometimes we have that intel that other people don't have and if you are not if you are seeing something that isn't right and you're not saying something you instantly become part of the problem. So the question I have for leaders is, do you want to be part of the problem or do you truly want to be part of the solution? And if you choose the latter, then you have to fully be a part of the solution by lending you know, some of your capital, your social capital as a leader that really wants to right the wrong. So those are, those are three things, if I, if I could just sum that up. That was wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing. 
Um, my last question to you, and I'm very curious to hear your answer. I uh, imagine more than one will come to mind, but with all the wisdom and experience you've had so far over your career, do you have a favorite quote or saying? One of my favorite that I use, and it's, I'm a woman of faith. So I'm really, really big on my faith. I don't, I don't think that I would be where I am if I were not a woman of faith. And one that I always say is, if I do what I can, God will do what I can't. And I just believe that. I believe that doing the things that I know I needed to do, you know, I, I felt like to get where I am, I needed to earn my advanced degree. I felt like I needed to network with some people that didn't look like me. And I felt like doing those things, if I did those things, then I felt like God would do some of the things that I couldn't do, where you know, putting me in front of people that I otherwise wouldn't be. The day that I had the conversation with a former leader who um, got to GM Financial before I did and had a vision about this position, I, we had lunch. This is an example of, you know, do what you can and God will do what you can. My mentor at the time was an older white man who was a, who was a previous boss from years ago. And we would have lunch. And I remember mentioning to him about this job. And I was like, well, Rich, I really, I'm real, I'm a little nervous about taking the job because I don't want to be the black woman figurehead of diversity. And people just look and say, oh, she's over diversity. Oh, okay, big deal. You know, it wasn't I wanted to be a big deal, but I wanted to be impactful. Mm -hmm. Like this was a role that I really wanted to be impactful with. And he said to me very flippantly, write your own job description. And I was like, hmm, I never thought about that. And I remember having lunch with Chris, who would have been my new boss. And I went back, wrote my own job description. Rich helped me and we kind of tweaked it a little bit. And basically it said, here's what I want to do in this position. The position wasn't even created yet, Megan. But I said, let me just write it anyway, because he told me to. Sounded like a good idea. Okay, I did it. And that was the beginning. And Chris took that, was very appreciative and cleaned it up and kind of, you know, made it in alignment with the job descriptions at GM Financial. And here we are today. And I don't know that had I not done that, if things would have happened the way they did. But what that said, I believe what it said to him and what it said to me was, Here's what I'd like to do in this role. Here's what I can offer you in this role. Here's my vision for the role. I don't know if he had a vision for the role. He had an idea, but I don't know if he had thought so far as to say, here's what the you know, overall responsibilities of the job will be. But I think I helped him in doing that. So you know, to that, I say, I did what I could and God did the rest. So yeah, it was, it was amazing how it happened. And you know, again, I'm just really grateful for, for the opportunity. But that's probably the main one. Another one that I often think about being in this position is, you know, I think as a leader, all of us have a responsibility to send the elevator down. And, you know, and what that means is, you know, the higher you climb, the more responsibility we have with helping other people climb. And I think this role has really afforded me the opportunity to do that, um, to help people realize a dream that they, you know, had or would like to to do. I've encouraged people to go back to school. We have tuition assistance. And I did it. I'm like, if I can do it, you can do it. 
um, to apply for a job that, you know, again, we talk about these studies and studies show that, you know, women will look at a job description and if they're not 100 percent, you know, 100 percent qualified, they won't apply for the job. Whereas a man will look at a job description and if he's 40 percent qualified, he'll apply. And I've encouraged women, so many women apply for the job. There are some things that they may require, but then there's some skills that they, they're willing to teach. You just never know. And so many women have come back to me and said, Shonda, oh my gosh, I would have never applied for that job had, had you not suggested that. So I think, you know, sending the elevator down is offering that wisdom, you know, that in, informal mentorship um, opportunities that you have to speak to somebody and share with them um, a nugget or, or, or two of wisdom that can help them um, in their career. And it's really about just making yourself available. I think, you know, you, we have a platform for a reason and we want to use that platform for good. And so that's really what I think about is I used to be them. I used to be hungry to be in a role like this. And once you, you know, get the, the fortunate and the blessing to be in that role, what you do with it is really what makes it. So it's not just for you. Well, and that quote is wonderful. And it really circles back to the power of mentoring. Shunda, thank you so much for such an excellent discussion on the power of being intentional. You know, whether it's creating connection, understanding, or action, uh, your stories and examples have been uh, just really wonderful. And I'm sure there is going to be a lot of virtual clapping going on. I want to thank everyone who is listening to this Mentium Matters podcast. We have a number of excellent guests like Shunda, so please make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. And for additional resources, you can find show notes on the Mentium website. We look forward to having you join us next time.